Hello and welcome to A History of the United States. Episode 154. It's a post-war depression. Stupid. Last time out, we set the stage for the critical period by introducing the Articles of Confederation and exploring how they were likely to cause problems for the fledgling United States. Today, we need to start to turn to the wider situation facing the United States that will transform the debate around the Articles of Confederation from semantics into national crisis, and there's only one place for us to start. It's the economy. Stupid. Post-war depressions are a phenomena that are very easy to observe. There is an article in volume 13, number 5, of the American Economic Review by Willard L. Thorpe about post-war depressions that actually opens with this quote from John Adams. Quote, I am old enough to remember the War of 1745 and its end, the War of 1755 and its close, the War of 1775 and its termination, the War of 1812 and its pacification. Every one of these wars has been followed by a general distress, embarrassments of commerce, destruction of manufacturers, and the fall of the price of produce and lands. End quote. It's not just American wars. The Napoleonic Wars and the Franco-Prussian War would have had the same effect in Europe in the 18th century, to say nothing of the effects of a world war. Throughout his article, Thorpe explains the basic mechanics of how and why a post-war depression happens, quite simply. When a conflict breaks out, the economy reorganises to handle it. Firstly, there is a massive new consumer, the state, which requires war materials. Second, business is adjust to produce war materials. Thirdly, there is a reduction in the number of workers as the state needs combatants. Historically, this has resulted in new forces being pulled into the labour market, namely, large numbers of women. Women's entry into the labour market is most frequently discussed around World War I, but if you think back to our episodes before the War of Independence, the colonies blockaded British goods, and the only way to maintain the flow of supplies was for American women to produce. Fourthly, there is the matter of how the state pays for the war. This is usually done by printing more currency, which drives inflation and pushes up commodity prices. Between 1776 and 1941, it's telling that the three outstanding peaks in commodity prices were in 1815, 1866 and 1920, after the end of the War of 1812, the Civil War and the First World War, respectively. When prices are going up, There is an incentive to buy items sooner, if possible, before they get more expensive, further continuing to drive the boom, to say nothing of the optimistic buying, straying into outright speculation. Thorpe's article goes on to suggest that the best method for sustained economic growth is a form of permanent stable warfare, which can be adjusted in intensity as the economy requires. I'm sure I could make a jibe at America's military-industrial complex over the last half-century, but it's too easy, so I'll let you make it in your head and we can swiftly move on. So, that's how a wartime economic boom can happen. But what causes the post-war depression? It's not instant, but after a couple of months, prices will usually stop going up. This happened in 1815, 
1866 and 1920. All of a sudden, you have prices falling, and people stop buying. At the same time, the largest purchaser in the economic system, the state, is suddenly no longer buying war materials, so you have an industry geared up to produce things that are no longer required. Combatants also return to the labour market, finding their jobs have either been taken or automated away, leading to unemployment. Then there's also the wider implications of the war in question, as adjustments need to be made. This would be true for the War of American Independence. A sudden trade reorientation is generally a shock to a country's economy. And again, I know it's an easy joke to make, but Brexit does make for an illustrative example. For decades, large portions of the British economy have been geared to face Europe, from both an import and export basis. Suddenly, regulations change, businesses have closed, and growth has been lost. According to an article in the Financial Times in November 2021, Brexit is currently costing Britain about £32 billion a year. In the years after the American Revolution, the newly formed nation underwent a similar economic shock. The American colonies were, you'll recall, fully integrated into the British Empire's mercantilistic system, which was regulated by the Navigation Acts. The colonies were not allowed to trade outside of the British Empire, which was a major source of frustration to the New England merchants in particular. Then, suddenly, the Americans were outside of the British Empire. The major trade links were broken. What were they going to do? Well, actually, it was the British who had a solution. They altered the Navigation Act to allow goods to go from the United States, either in British or American ships, duty-free. On the surface, these appear to be generous terms from the British, which, knowing what we do about the British Empire, means they were anything but. This is because there was one huge catch. The Americans could trade with Britain itself only. The British Isles, not the Empire and the main customers for American goods were the British West Indies. Now, British merchants would be able to trade these routes, but American merchants would not, a massive competitive advantage because they could now afford to charge lower rates. In short enough time, the British would drive American merchants from the Atlantic. In response, the American states started to pass their own navigation acts and created tariffs against British goods, which created a new division between the American merchants, who opposed the tariffs, and the American artisans, who supported them. Quite a difficult economic conundrum, except this was only one piece of it. We haven't even talked about debt yet. Wars are expensive, and America had to pay a lot of money to win its independence. In 1783, the United States was in about £8 million of debt, a figure which was up to nearly £12 million by 1789. This was a problem. Now, admittedly, a lot of this money was owed to France. France was in the middle of its own financial crisis in the 1780s, not that anyone at the time knew it. So the French weren't that concerned about collecting payment, but there were national creditors too who were less forgiving. These creditors wanted paying, and more importantly, they wanted paying using useful currency. Congress's paper money was seen as valueless. Hard specie was important. 
and the Americans didn't have much of it. Previously, hard currency had two sources, Britain and Spain. Spanish currency was used widely in the colonial era, but had disappeared during the Revolutionary War, so the Americans would need to rely on the British. Except, oh wait, the United States was in a trade war with Britain. No good. Therefore, the only real option for the US was to add value to the paper currency through taxation. But think back to last week, according to the Articles of Confederation, Congress did not have the right to raise taxes. That belonged to the states, each of which was involved in its own financial crisis and didn't particularly want to pass any funds along to the national government, which helps explain how the national debt went up nearly 50% in six years. This created tensions between debtors and creditors throughout the states. This was a problem. Now, the problem was similar across the states, but it manifested in a multitude of ways. In Rhode Island, the debtors took power and tried to force the creditors to accept valueless paper money, creating economic dislocation. Meanwhile, in Massachusetts, the problem got tied into the old conflict between the merchant-led and Boston-dominated east of the state and the rural agricultural west. Taxes were raised to pay down the state debt, but to a level the west of the state felt was unacceptable. You have to remember that the land in the north was poor. We're not talking about the plantation economy of the south, or even the rich land of Pennsylvania. In Massachusetts, we're dealing with pretty much subsistence-level agriculture. The only contribution to trade these farmers would make was exchanging a small portion of their harvest for tea or sugar, and they would do this directly rather than using currency. James Swan would comment in 1786, quote, When a farmer brings his produce to the market, he is obliged to take up with the buyer's office and is forced, not infrequently, to take merchandise in exchange, which is totally insufficient to discharge his taxes. There is no family that does not want for some money, for some purposes, and the little which the farmer carries home from market must be applied to other uses, besides the paying of the tax collector's bills. The consequence is, distraint is made upon his stock or real estate. End quote. Not that this elicited any sympathy in the East, which had been ruined both by a rush of goods to the market immediately following the peace and by the standstill in trade. As I mentioned after discussing the 1783 Peace of Paris, America had great potential. The incredibly wealthy George Washington wrote in 1785, quote, It is wonderful to see how soon the ravages of war are repaired. Houses are rebuilt, fields enclosed, stocks of cattle which were destroyed are replaced, and many a dislocated territory assumes again the cheerful appearance of cultivation. In many places, the vestiges of conflagration and ruin are hardly to be traced. The arts of peace, such as clearing rivers, building bridges, and establishing conveniences for travelling, are arduously promoted. In short, the foundation of a great empire is laid. End quote. Now, Washington isn't wrong here. America had tremendous natural resources, and we do know now that this was the foundation of what would become a superpower. But the scenes of a crisis were there too, even if certain members of the elite didn't want to see it. 
the United States had its existing trade routes destroyed and was trying to rebuild from a severely weakened position. The economic crisis was making itself felt both with the merchants who were unable to do business and the farmers who were unable to afford the taxes being asked of them. This left each state struggling with its own financial crisis, with nobody caring about the financial crisis on the national level. Something was clearly bubbling away, and we shall watch it explode in the next episode in the form of Shay's Rebellion. Thanks for listening. I'll see you next time.